0: This week, the people could fly. Queer and black voices in fantasy and science fiction, and a little genre called hope punk. I'm talking to Flyest Fables creator Morgan Givens in an interview that spans the full gamut of human experience. Stick around for an engrossing conversation with a fantastic man, right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, your butter and toast, proportional rep beats first past the post, your advocate for ranked choice voting systems who is always the most, David Reinstrom. This week we're continuing our coverage of Flyest Fables, the podcast we covered last week, which has now completed its first season. I would recommend that you go back and listen to the whole thing before you hear this interview, because Morgan and I range all over the first few stories in that season. Morgan is a really interesting, open-hearted person who, while he's been telling stories on stage and in podcast form for years, he's only recently become a podcast and radio producer, after having completed an intensive 10-week course at Transom, a training organization run by American Public Media. You can find out more at transom.org, and find the pieces Morgan created in the spring of 2018 by searching for his name on the website, Morgan Givens G-I-V-E-N-S. Transom trains its producers in the NPR nonfiction style, but Morgan chose to create a 10-minute historical fiction piece for his final project. It's called Runway, and it's definitely worth a listen. So have a seat get comfy, and listen in on our conversation. I I want to apologize for some of my audio here. I forgot to ask Morgan to put in headphones, and my side of the conversation bleeds into his channel occasionally, especially when I laugh or engage in crosstalk. That's on me, not him, and definitely not on Eli, who edited this excellent conversation. So let that be a lesson to those of you who host or want to host interview podcasts. All parties should wear headphones for maximum audio hygiene. Okay, kiddos. Open your ears and your hearts to Morgan Givens. Let's go. Morgan, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. What a pleasure to have you on the program. What a pleasure to meet you. Thanks. I appreciate it. So, to start off, I'd like you to tell me about your nephew and the genesis of this project and The People Could Fly by Virginia Hamilton.
1: Yeah, um, my nephew... Yeah. He turns three in January. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And I'm like, he's still such a little person, but he's like, got so much personality uh, and he's hitting that age where he's trying to tell you to do stuff. So i am like, hold on little <laughs> man. <laughs> um, but he's a great kid. He's wicked smart. And you know, I, I always buy him books. My brother's big on buying him books as well, but like I always had such a deep love for reading growing up that I wanted him to have that too. And so I buy him books and I wanted to buy him some, some more books for his birthday because it's January 1st. He's a New Year's baby? He is a New Year's baby, which is probably why That's he amazing. acts so brand new all the time. Uh, <laughs> but I, I started looking back in October. I like to send him books throughout the year and whatnot. And I, I couldn't find... I was specifically looking for um, something that was fablesque, uh, for lack of a better word. And that was r- more uh, relevant, I guess, to who uh, he is as a young little black kid, the friends he'll probably have, what the world is going to look like as he grows older, and also representative of the world now. And I couldn't find it, you know? And, I, and that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. I The world is too big for me to be like, it just didn't exist, but I couldn't find it. And so I got kind of frustrated, and I was like, well, what is he going to have to look at? What is he going to have that can, like, Impart these thematic messages without being over the top, and I couldn't. So since I couldn't find it, I was like, okay, I'm gonna make it. And one of my favorite books growing up, which is a book that I did end up buying from him, was *The People Could Fly* by Virginia K. Hamilton, and it was one of my favorite books. And it is like all these uh, African American folklore tales of of you know black people. You know, finding ways to go beyond, and there it's like this magical realism uh, imbued within it. And one of the pinnacle short stories within her book is called "The People Could Fly," and it it is you know formerly enslaved people, if I'm remembering correctly. I haven't read the book in like five years, but I'm about to read it because I'm giving it to him. But they end up flying. You know, they fly away from bondage. They fly away from all these different ills and they take it upon themselves to do so. It isn't something that like we see in society where like a white person says, oh, you can fly now. And they're like, oh, cool, we're going to fly. They're like, no, we are flying and getting up out of here. So (laughs) thanks, white guy. Yeah, like I appreciate you trying, but we're good, you know? So um, (laughs) that was like, it came from like this idea and this desire for wanting my nephew to have stories that could be representative of him and also wanting him to fall in love with stories the same way that I did and that book the people could fly it you know it still is one of my favorite books and I'm 32 years old you know <laughs> so uh, yeah
0: that's awesome please let me know if and when I stray from my lane here morgan but I feel like there's so much in flyest fables that reclaims the fantasy genre from the white gaze from the straight gaze from the cis gaze and makes it joyously black joyously queer joyously trans can you Can you tell me about some of the philosophy that animates the project? Well, um, you know,
1: as a kid, I was a huge reader. I read all the time, and I still do. And the fantasy genre was one of my favorites. Uh, Sci-fi, fiction, fantasy fiction, I I loved it all. I still love it. But so often, you know, it's it's changing. You know, you have Nnedi Okorafor, you have N.K. Jemisin. It's changing. But for so long, I could not pick up a book, a fantasy book that had people in it like me in whatever way they might appear in in the story. I couldn't pick up a fantasy book and recognize myself in any of the characters, uh, regardless of their, you know, based on queerness or blackness or the fact that I am I am a trans man. You know, it just wasn't there. And so that's another thing that I do try to incorporate in the Flyest Fables. You know, it it all comes back to this thing that I have that the Queen of Stories, who is a character in the podcast says, when she says, you are a story keeper, like you are the keeper of your stories. You can say that this is worth being told, this is worth being heard. And I wanted to not only make something that my nephew could have, but make something that i wanted as a kid and so i i try to be subtle about it and not you know not out of this sense of shame uh when it comes to queerness or uh the fact that i'm trans but there's something magical i think that comes when seeing yourself and other people have you've been invisible you know one of my favorite shows growing up was xena warrior princess And I was like, they're gay. (laughs) I was like, Zena and Gabrielle are totally like dating. Like, hold up a minute. And for me, that was like this magical moment because I saw the magic that other people didn't. And so, Fly as Fables can be enjoyed, I think, by anyone. But for people like me who are part of these communities who are queer, who are trans, who sit at the intersection of race and all these other um, aspects of who we are. I want them to have that magic of being like, I see something that the other people don't. I recognize these characters in a way that other people might not. And I could maybe take the first step to kind of be like them. And so that's that's it for me because we can be heroes too. Uh, We can save the world too. We can do wonderful things and we do these things every day. But I really wanted to create these characters with love and give young people images of people like me who are not bound and bogged down in the drudgery of what the world makes us put up with by virtue of our existence. Like We already know that because we live it, but I
0: wanted people to have a little magic at the end of the day. Sure. Thank you. That was great. Sure. You're welcome. (laughs) So I I identified the Neneti Okorafor reference because you just straight out say like, Antoine, your assignment is to read Binti. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I was curious about two possible N.K. Jemisin references, one being Devonate being a, a gem seeker and whether or not that was sort of a sly reference to uh, the world of um, the Broken Earth trilogy.
1: Um, So I actually haven't read that trilogy, but I think there is some things that are just instrumental in storytelling something that pulls at the core of who we are um but i did read if i'm uh, i can't remember the title but i don't want to spoiler alert it for anyone the story that nk Jemison wrote about the character who did change genders throughout the story i remember that and i specifically and i remember when i read it i was like you can do that like you i was like as a writer you can literally make your characters who Ever you want them to be, um, and so when I read that, that I can't lie and act like that was not an awakening moment for me. Like I don't, I no longer have to write for the white gaze or to the white audience. I don't have to write, you know, to cis heteronormative people. I was like, I can write characters that speak directly to this, you know, pocket of the population. And I wrote Devine the way I did because I wanted her. To, I wanted her to be representative of gender queerness. Um, I, I don't identify as being genderqueer, but I have plenty of friends who do. And I'm like, dang, I'm like, as a trans man, we barely get any representation in the media. I was like, genderqueer people are like even more non-existent than us in media. And right. so, you know, Devonay specifically was a tip to the hat to all my gender queer friends and all the young gender queer kids and young people i know who are coming up now i wanted them to be i i again i wanted them to have this character who they could look at who could be afraid who could struggle who couldn't you know not know what to do and still recognize that that's okay you know so often our heroes in books and in television and just you know even how we write our history they're projected as always having known That their steps were ordered towards greatness. And Mm -hmm. Devonate doesn't know that. And you know, Devonate, they're also genderqueer, you know, and which is why I switch the pronouns throughout the writing. I go from she to they and back again. And someone who might not know anything about genderqueerness might be like, Okay, cool, yeah, they obviously they're talking about Devonet. But for people who are genderqueer, people who are part of that community, they're gonna know. They're gonna be like, Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, okay. And also, by virtue of her existence, their existence, I don't know, I just, it's just my way, I guess, of trying to make the world less harsh on people like me and my genderqueer friends, if
0: that makes sense. Sure. They also shift back to being she when they return to their dad, Mm -hmm. which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Uh, Because, I don't know, I was just at home for Thanksgiving and I... (laughs) I regressed into an earlier version of myself. Yeah. <laughs> every, t- every time I'm with my parents, I just get yeah, my hackles get raised. Dude, I mean, I love my family, but like, even when <laughs> sure I go too. home,
1: you know, <laughs> I, I, I have, you know, been on testosterone for over seven years now. And even when I go home, I find myself raising the pitch in my voice. Like, this is how I normally talk with my friends. Really? And then I get home and I'm like, hey, mom. And it was like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> like, what are you doing? And so, you know, you are a very astute listener because that that is something I wanted them to have, that, yeah, Devonae came back, and yeah, it seems like she is slightly more feminine right now, but she's still who she is, and they are still the person capable of leading their people in a moment where they kind of need some guidance. And my friends who are gender queer they will tell me they'll be like some days I wake up and I'm like I am more feminine presenting today. day. these are the pronouns I want and I'm like, all right bet you know and so you know again that's just kind of a nod to the fluidity of gender queerness um, yeah. but no I I wanted I wanted Devine to stand in that truth of femininity for a moment just also because of how, disparaged femininity is in society and that she in her feminine form is is also kind of what led her people um i i didn't want her to be super masculine in that moment because that's the story we're always told that even within marginalized groups the man is the one who comes and saves us like that's what we got with mlk forgetting that Rosa Parks and black women set up the network that supported the civil rights movement that made it so MLK could be MLK so i yeah that was that was intentional
0: <laughs> cool um this is going to be a minor spoiler for the episode so far but i would like to hear about the ethic that undergirds these fables cuz it feels very earnest and very merciful, like Keisha throws away her sword, Devonet refuses to revenge herself on the appraisers in the second fable, and the listeners in the frame narratives take lessons from each of these things. So my question is, what do you want the listener, or what do you want your nephew to learn from Flyest Fables, what do you want them to take away?
1: You know, that's a good question because I feel like a lot of times I'm writing directly to my nephew and the kid version of myself, like sitting side by side, which is very strange. That's strange. <laughs> That's good to know. Um, but I, I just remember growing up and, you know, even on the police, I was... So I was a cop
0: in D.C. for... For th- almost three years, right? Almost
1: three years, yeah. And there was so much aggression in moments when I realized situations could be easily diffused by my taking a step back. And I worked with some officers who seemed incapable of admitting fault or apologizing or taking the road less traveled for many officers, which is to de-escalate. And so, you know, when I was on the department, a lot of the times, you know, I didn't really have to go hands-on with people, which means to, like, have to, you know, really, like, get physical with them. And it was because I talked to them I had all of these weapons, and you know, there's this moment where the dragon says, "You you ask for my help, but you come here armed," and it's you. It's hard to gain the trust of people if you do come at them aggressively. If you do come at them um, with state-sanctioned violence at your back or any type of violence, you know, at your at your back. And so, I really want I really wanted my nephew to know that sometimes it's okay to take that step back. It's okay to to pause and reflect and talk to people, and that you don't have to live up to this idea of what victory looks like, or how you can win a situation, or even what masculinity is, that you can be like, you know what? This situation could break left in a really bad way, but what if I stand down first? And you know that was something that I learned on the department was that if when I stood down, the people I encountered stood down too even if they were very upset when I first got there, which is understandable, like, you don't call the police because you're having a great day, Um, or I'm not encountering you because your day is just (laughs) hunky-dory, you know? But, like, if they were super amped up and very agitated on scene, and I just got there, and I was just like, what's going on? You know, very calmly, and I just kept repeating it, they would eventually come down to my level. But if I, you know, if I showed up on scene, and they're at a 10 and I roll up at a 10. It's like, well, where do you go from there? And so it, there's this, I don't know. Like, I, I just, I'm cynical enough to think that it won't work in all cases, uh, but optimistic enough to believe that if if you try to have peace truly, even when it's hard and you're afraid, um, that it can be possible, like whether it's a relationship one-on-one whether it's a relationship societally, that it it can be possible, but you have to also admit your faults because, you know, Keisha did show up with a sword. talk about some help me, you know, right. so it's like, was she right in that? Was she wrong? So yeah, I, I guess that's part of it is that it's okay to stand down. And if you stand down, people will too. I mean, even a dog will stand down if you quit looking them
0: in the eye. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I love the inclusion of music in Flyest Fables and I want to know more about your decision to include it. What can you tell me about that decision? You know, that was, it was almost random.
1: Um, You know, I was a band geek growing up, Uh, I was in marching band, very, you know, learned how to read music, learned, you know, the intricacies of scales and all of these things because my band director demanded that we understand music on a level beyond, you know, the fact that we can listen to it and enjoy it. Um, but I've always, like, made up random little songs. That's just been something I do. I saw that in the
0: the video you just made about soup.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, I'm just like, why am I singing? I don't know. You know, my wife is like, you singing again? <laughs> you know, but, like, <laughs> it don't matter. I can be making dinner, like, I'm going to chop up these onions. And, you know, I'm just, like, randomly <laughs> always kind of singing. Uh-huh.
0: I can identify.
1: <laughs> I just remember when I was trying to figure out how to make Flyest Fables something that people would feel connected to and, you know, to the child in them. Because, you know, a lot of folks, when we're growing up, depending on where we live, you know, who our parents are, family or whatnot, we watch children's cartoons and movies and people are always singing in them and it's not considered something weird. It's like, of course they're singing, it's a kid's movie, you know, type thing. But the music, for me... Is a way for these characters to access some of the more vulnerable parts of who they are, some of the parts that they might want to hide from themselves, from the people around them, their insecurities, their deepest thoughts. You know, in the, um, I mean, we already spoiler alert, so we're good. So, like in episode six, when Devonay is with the ocean, and she sings, "How can you be so sure when I am so insecure?" Like. That is something that I I don't think could have had the same emotional resonance if they had just said it, as opposed right. to singing it, because there is something I think about singing that really does like pinpoint the heart of a person. It pinpoints the listener. And singing in and of itself is an act of vulnerability. You know, if you're singing in front of people you don't know or people you've never met or even if you're singing in front of people you do know, because now you are opening up this creative side of yourself that others might not have had access to. And so, yeah, like the singing, I think, is instrumental not only in moving the plot along um, and helping tie up different ends, but also pinpointing the motivations of some of the characters without me having to spell it out narratively in dialogue. And I also think it, it lends itself to the magic of what the show sounds like or what I try to make it sound like because it harkens back to when we were children as as older people. And that is just something that has always just been, I don't know, just at the forefront of my mind. And also I'm a big fan of musicals. So I'm like, all right, I'll make a podcast with the occasional musical number and then it turned into a song every episode,
0: and here we are, (laughs) So. so. it is an incredible feat that you do all the voices for Flyest Fables because they're all so different. You're accessing so many different social registers and timbres. My question is, what do you base your voices on? Are you thinking of specific people for specific voices?
1: You know, in some of the characters I am, not not all of them, but in some of them, uh, I am like Antoine's mom is based on my mother. <laughs> like My mom, you know, when Antoine comes out of the school or like in, in the second episode where he's like, you know, talking back a little bit and she's like, do I look like one of your little friends? Like, my mother has said that to me <laughs> on more than one occasion. <laughs> so the characters, some of them are based on people i actually know my grandmother um she was a cop but she stress bakes you know but she also bakes just because she loves it so that voice of marcus's grandmother is based on my grandma um marcus is just this amalgamation of lots of young black men that i have met um and also a little piece of myself and the the, i mean honestly the hardest part of voicing all these characters is making sure they don't sound like stereotypes (laughs) but yeah a lot of them are based on just me knowing who this character is intrinsically like knowing who they are so that i can voice them in a way that is authentic to the character that i've already imagined in my mind and imagined who they would be um so yeah I i don't know like i I think of like when I voice Antoine, I picture Antoine in my head, like he is real to me in like the way that literary characters can be real. And so I'm like, what does Antoine sound like? And I'm like, I know what Antoine sounds like. Antoine sounds like a young kid who is hopeful, but kind of getting beat down by life right now because these bullies got him a little exhausted and his mother doesn't really understand what's going on because that is something that happens to a lot of young kids. Who are struggling in school, sometimes their parents wanna help and they just don't know how or don't know how much their child needs that help. And so, like, yeah. how do I reflect that in Antoine's voice? And so I really sit and I think about who these characters are. And then I'm like, this is what they would sound like. This is where they've lived. You know, this has been their life experience. You know, the Marcus in my mind before he became Marcus, who had to, who's like on the streets doing what he has to do to get by, his voice wasn't as hard that Marcus's voice wasn't as hard like and you hear a piece of that in the end of episode six where he's like you you can have it like his voice begins to soften as he begins to soften again and so I try to make the voices representative of actually who the character is in that moment and what they're going through as well as who I know them to be even if those listening don't know all these details. Like I'm not going to be like Antoine in my mind is X feet tall and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. I I can picture it. So that's kind of how I I like to do it.
0: What can you tell me about the narrator voice that you use for the, for the overstory, not for the world of the book, but for the, the DC universe. So,
1: so the one that sounds like this, (laughs) like the the one would be like Antoine walk down there. Um, That one, yeah. Yeah, that that voice, you know, I'm from North Carolina. Um, And so I had family members and friends and uh, loved ones and people I didn't even know who kind of had that range of voice. Like their voices had that slight Southern drawl to them. And so it's a it's a voice that I am comfortable with. And I, I don't usually have that that sound unless I get a little drunk <laughs> and then like that's, <laughs> that's kind of how I talk, you know. But that voice outside of the the one who, who who narrates outside of the book, it's, you know, it's based on the voices of the people I heard growing up. It's based on the voices of some of the older family members that I had and still have. And it, it also, in my mind, you know, it reminds me of the stories I would be told by older family members when they would sit me down and they would be like, you will not believe what happened when I woke up this morning. And you're like, what happened? And like, suddenly you just kind of wanted to lean into it. I wanted the voice outside of the book, that narrator who, who, who tells us what's happening to the characters outside of the world of the book. I wanted that voice to have that same warm, slightly southern draw quality because I wanted people to lean in. I wanted people to hear that voice and be like, well, what is he, well, you know, what is he about to say? And at least for me, there's just something very comforting about that, you know, that simple pacing of talking, that that slight draw, because for me it sounds like home.
0: Yeah, I would listen to that voice for a million years. I would listen to like a thousand hours of audiobook of that voice.
1: Thank you so much. Like, I I guess I just wanted other people to hear a little piece of my home, you know, and I, I, you know, real talk, I haven't even thought about it until you asked me, but like, yeah, I draw on so many different experiences from my real lived life. And I think a lot of artists do too, but that's where that voice came from. That's that we're going to sit around with a, you know, a pot of baked beans
0: and some cornbread and I'm going to tell you a story voice. So I want to give you the floor to talk about Transom and your experience <laughs> as a student at that audio workshop on Cape Cod, what it was like to make a fiction piece as at a traditionally nonfiction workshop, uh, and to talk about Runaway.
1: Yeah, so Transom is this storytelling workshop where you get like a nine-week intensive training on crafting audio, like nonfiction stories. That's their bread and butter. The people behind it I know now are within the pantheon of audio i had no idea who these people were you know so you've got jay allison <laughs> um who started prx i believe uh atlantic public media he was one of the co-founders of that they're very much in tap with radio public you've got rob rosenthal who was a lead instructor who taught who taught excuse me at salt which is this documentary audio studies program our school you've got samantha brown who is a incredible producer who has produced shows that have ended up on this American life. They've got this woman named Vicki Merrick, who voice coaches you, who teaches you how to sound like your natural self and not what happens to a lot of people when they get behind a microphone, they're like, Oh, I have to talk like I'm on NPR, you know, type thing. Mm-hmm. And so you got Sydney Lewis. And, and so it's basically these, this group of people who wanted to start an audio school to teach new up and coming producers the craft of audio storytelling, at least to give them a very solid foundation. And in the nine weeks that you're there, you create a four and a half minute piece on a person of your choosing who you go find in the community of Cape Cod. And you interview them and you mix it and you make a four and a half minute piece that you might hear on NPR, your local NPR station. And then, you know, they also, you have to do this piece that is... A piece that is your choice it is a creative piece it can be whatever you want but i you know i can't say enough about the folks at transom like if anybody is wondering if audio can be something they can do it is they will teach you how they will work with you i never had a moment while i was there where i feel like i was being judged for not knowing they're just really wonderful people and i could actually be myself not the self that I sometimes have to be in predominantly white spaces. Like I could let it all hang out and they were all about it and and not in a performance. That's awesome. They're just like, yeah, cool. All right. That's, that's an interesting perspective. We haven't thought about that. How can we incorporate that into your piece or whatever the case may be? But they also had a scholarship. That's how I was able to go because, you know, transom costs $10,000 and while you're there, you know they bring in people like Ira Glass and Zoe Chase, and you know Al Letson comes and talks to you, and Shereen Marisol Meraji came when I was there. But it's ten grand, and at a certain point, they recognized that it was cost prohibitive to a lot of people that they said they wanted to help get into audio, and so they have a full scholarship now. Um, that covers the full tuition. It'll cover transportation, you know, while you're there. They feed you two to three meals a night at dinner. They have a, a it's catered. And, you know, there's always enough for lunch the next day. So they, they really make strides, but they're wonderful people who can teach you how to take whatever's in your head and translate it to, to the audio medium. So, you know, Transom was dope. You know, like if you are a beginning producer, even if you only been doing it for like a year or two and you're like, how can I get better? Transom is the place.
0: So you were an officer with the DC Metropolitan Police Department for like almost three years. And then after that, you worked for Just Detention International, a nonprofit dedicated to ending sexual abuse and violence in the carceral state. I want to hear about how and why you came to be a cop and how you ended up working for Just Detention. Sure.
1: Um, so part of it is, frankly, that I graduated college in 2010, like in the mm-hmm. middle of the recession. And, and while I was in college, I began to read a little more about institutionalized forms of oppression. You know, I always knew what it was, but I didn't have the language for it. And the more I kind of dove into these writings and, and this research, I got kind of curious. I was like, well, what the hell happens to police officers? To some of them, when they become cops, that they behave in this manner, that they act this way, that they treat life so callously. Um, and so part part of it, I was driven by curiosity. Another part was that I needed a job. And, you know, my grandmother, she was a cop for like 30 years, trained multiple people in that department. I mean, when she retired, we had to rent out a banquet hall because of all the people who wanted to come. And, and my grandmother was... She was born in, you know, down in Charlotte, North Carolina. My great grandmother died when my grandma was 12, 11 or 12. My great grandfather has uh, paranoid schizophrenia. And so it was kind of my grandmother on her own at 12. And she had my mom fairly young and she worked a lot of menial jobs. She did everything she had to do to keep the, keep, keep the lights on and keep, keep her and my mother fed. Um, and they lived in the projects in North Carolina. And you know, one day, I, I can't quite remember how she came about applying, but she decided to apply to the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department, was the first Black woman through, I believe, um, or one of the first. I don't want to misspeak here. And she was quite wise with her money. My grandmother was very, very smart with how she spent her money and she is doing incredibly well for herself to the point where, like, if someone met her now, they would never know where she came from. But my grandmother never forgot. Um, but I looked at her and I was like, if grandma could do this, I was like, this is like a path that I could take in life. And I was like, I'm curious. Why do people act this way and they become officers? I need a job. And I was like, and my grandmother has shown me that this could be a potential path. So that's kind of what led me to joining the police department. You know, I was there for almost three years, like I said you know, I learned a lot about myself while I was there, uh, specifically about some of my own internal prejudices and biases. And honestly, I credit the police department with making me check those all the time, you know, because even as a black person, it's easy to internalize a lot of the things society tells you about who we are. And so on the department, I would always be checking myself, like, why are you thinking this? I always ask myself why I was thinking a certain thing about a particular person before I even engaged with them. And if I didn't have a good answer, I left them alone. But, you know, I got the opportunity to help rewrite the training curriculum. And then after I yeah. did that, I was like, you know what? I'm out because I could see that they were trying to groom me for brass. And you know who they're grooming early. I was like, oh, they want me to move up in the ranks. But when I looked around, the people who were at the top didn't really have families. And if they did, it was incredibly rare for them to be close to them. And so I was like, I want a family. I know that. Like, I know I want a wife who doesn't have to wonder if I'm coming home one or if I come home, am I going to have the energy to engage with her in a way that she deserves? And so I also knew that I wanted to do something that I thought was still for the public good, because I think I did a lot of good by the people I didn't arrest, which is a sad thing to say as a former officer yeah. is like the most good I did was the people I didn't lock up,
0: you know, but like, sure. that's so complicated.
1: I, I had one of the lowest arrest records. Cause I'm like, if I can talk to you about it and I don't see you doing it again. And my whole job is supposed to be for the betterment of the community. What's better for the community to lock up this person who has made a mistake Or out of whatever reason, desperation, they did X, Y, and Z, and now this person is away from their family. We've lost a contributing member to society. Or is it better to look at the bigger picture and be like, actually it's better if you stay here. Please don't do that again, you know? (laughs) So but I knew I still wanted to do something that that I thought was for the public good. And I saw, you know, randomly saw that Just Attention International was hiring. And I looked more into who they were as an organization and what their mission was. And I was like, wow, y'all are literally the only organization globally solely dedicated to eliminating sexual violence in prisons and detention centers. And I thought that was a worthwhile cause. I was like, oh, absolutely. I was like, because oftentimes people get incarcerated and we act like that's it or we act like they deserve you know, the worst of what could possibly happen to someone who is in the prison system. And it's like, well, no, like you said, and we as a society, some of us agreed and said, you did this, then you go to prison for three years and you can come out. We didn't as a society say, if you do this now, when you go to prison, we're going to allow all these additional harms
0: against you. Right. That wasn't part of the deal.
1: Yeah, like that wasn't the deal. The, the societal contract said you go there, serve your time and come out. Not like you go there, you get abused and come out. And now you're bringing all of that that hurt and that woundedness and, and, and that shame back out into society. And I'm like, it creates this toxic cycle. And I was like, that
0: sounds like an organization that, that would be worth worth working for. Right. So the week that you and I are having this conversation... In fact, just yesterday, you organized a conversation for your day job at 1A on WAMU about the genre of hope punk, which featured friends of the show, Will Williams and Eli Barraza, both of whom think you are great and say hi. Um, (laughs) I have a a few questions because as a producer and not the host, uh, your voice wasn't heard during the segment except for a pre-recorded bit that Joshua Johnson, the host, played at the very beginning. And so I want to ask you, first of all, how do you define hope punk?
1: Oh, man. For me, Hope Punk is, you know, and maybe I have the cynics view of it. I think perhaps I am of the generation that is going to be far more cynical um, than previous generations. For me, Hope Punk is recognizing the cynicism in the world around us, recognizing that at least for me, I am still a cynical person. Like, I still doubt the motives and intentions of others. But I believe that if people truly tried and really wanted to, that they could do better, that we could do better one step at a time. And for me, Hope Punk is about sitting at those crossroads. It's about being at the crossroads because it was, you know, a conversation on utopian fiction um, and Hope Punk. And so for me, Hope Punk is uh, the type, this genre that sits at the crossroads. And you can go one way or the other. You can you can do everything in your power to push towards a more egalitarian or more utopian future in society, or you can give in to your worst impulses of who we are as people and find ourselves slipping more towards a dystopian society. You know, and you know, I look around the world and I'm so glad Alexandra Rollins coined this term hope punk because i look around and i i feel like the world is once again at a crossroads i i majored in history in in school not that that's like i'm a historian but like i've always been deeply interested in history and you know read everything i can and i'm like oh i am seeing the signs like a lot of other people of similar themes societally and globally that were there prior to World War II, that were there prior to World War I, that were there prior to some of the larger shakeups we have had to the global social order throughout you know, the times that we have been recording history and writing it down. And so for me, Hope Punk is about putting out the, the art and the creativity that, that drives people to say, we don't wanna go back down that road. We have been down that road before. And so for, for me, Hope Punk is like, you, it, it all is not lost yet. It's not lost yet. You can be a cynic, but it's not lost yet. You're not a dead cynic, you know? You still <laughs> have to be cynical. So for yeah. me, Hope Punk is like, kind of like Alex and Will kind of alluded to on the show, that it is about seeing the world and fighting for the world to be better and fighting to protect the good that is currently there. So that's kind of my take on Hope Punk. It's like, we're at the crossroads, dog. Make a choice. <laughs> like, And quitting out the art that shows people making the choice that makes the
0: world better. Do you feel like Flyest Fables is Hope Punk? I certainly hope it is. <laughs> um, you know, I, I had never
1: really thought about it until I learned about what it was. And when I learned what Hope Punk was, I was like, yo... This is Fly's Fables. Holy heck! Wait a minute. Whoa! Wait, wait. I was like, "You mean to tell me I accidentally made a hope punk podcast and didn't mean to?" Uh (laughs) But I I do think it is um, because I don't get really gritty and dark with anything. But I, I think I try to show some of the real conflicts that arise in the everyday world for your average person. And how just one moment of kindness, one moment of putting another person ahead of you in thought and deed, like, because I've always been very interested in ripple effects. I've always been interested in the consequences to the consequence of an action, you know, beyond what you see or what you know. And so it's like, if, if I create these characters who go through their world and they're struggling, And they find one moment of hope. They find one thing that makes them believe. And that thing that makes them believe pushes them to be kinder. Even if it's, you know, it's barely recognizable, but, you know, in their small actions, if it pushes them to be kinder, then those have ripple effects because Antoine gave the book to Marcus. Marcus gave the book to Jada. And every time they did this small thing of kindness, it had profound effects. On the lives of the people who who were the recipients of this one thing that they probably didn't think about after it was gone. You know, Antoine skipped yeah. away like I'm good. You know, <laughs> and so it's like I, I I hope it is hope punk, and I I hope it gives people a moment of optimism and 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 gives them a reason to believe that if if you do just one kind thing a day, you are doing one kind of thing a day far more than anybody else probably has in, in their entire day. So I very much believe in the impact of small actions, and I think they can have resounding and long-lasting effects even if we never see them, uh, if we never see what happens.
0: This question kind of bounces back a little bit to what we were talking about as regards the philosophy of Flyest Fables, but I, I was curious to get your opinion on what you think it means that the book has someone's name written on it and that the agency passes from character to character like that the story was selected by the queen of stories for them that that story belongs to them that it is their story like it says in the end note for every fable yeah
1: (laughs) you know i wanted to name the characters i wanted it to be like the queen of stories says like this is your story Because oftentimes for black and brown folks, for queer folks, or whatever the case may be, we are told by society what our story is. And often what society tells us our story is, is counter to who we actually are, or is actually something that is a story that they tell us that is damaging. You look at the story that society tells you about black and brown people, that story is getting black people gunned down in the streets. You know, you look at the stories that society tells you about trans people, those stories are getting trans women, particularly trans women who are black and brown, killed. You know, you, right. you look at the stories that society tells us are our stories. And they're not they are the stories that society wants us to believe about ourselves and so i'm like i am going to write this story i am going to say this is your story and because i know there are so many people or who who were like me who wanted to see themselves reflected in these characters that they can then also say this is my story too this is my story not what society tells me my story is not who society tells me i should be but my story is mine, and my story is good, and my story is pure, and my story might have struggles and strife, but I will find a way to overcome with the help of others and by believing in myself and taking that step out on faith. So that was that's like a big part of the reason why their names are on the book and why the queen of stories tells them at the end, the conclusion of their story arc, that you are a story keeper, Because we are our own story keepers. We can write our stories. We can tell our stories. And I think we're getting to the point in media, especially with podcasting continuing to take up more media space, that it is harder for the dominant narrative to tell us what our story is. Because now we can tell it ourselves. And so that was very intentional to have their names on the book. And to also have the queen of stories say you are a story keeper because we don't get told that we get told that our stories are whatever we you know society tells us, not the stories we make for ourselves and not the stories that are kind of passed down to us from our families and the people who love us.
0: Sure, it was. It also felt very intentional that the the place names where people came from were like the kingdom of Langston and the kingdom of Orleans, just like infusing blackness that had not. Been present there previously in the American fantasy genre, and I thought that was really cool and really powerful. Thank you, thank you, thank you for sharing all of this with me. Thank you for sharing your story with me. Absolutely. Um, my final question is: as as we've been alluding to, it can be kind of a grim time to be alive. Yes. <laughs> and I was I was curious as to what gives you hope these days. Um, you know. What gives me hope is
1: that I think because I've always read so many books and I've always just been a big lover of history, that I know that there is that quote that is so often attributed to MLK, and I can't remember the name of the the reverend who actually said it the first time, that the the arc of history bends towards justice or something like that. I know we have Mm -hmm. that quote. And I have hope because I believe that even if the world gets darker there will come a point, there always comes a point when people will not take it anymore. They just won't. You know, there are revolutions, there are rebellions, and the world is so often made anew and often made better, and then we become human again, and we kind of screw it up a bit, but (laughs) for whatever reason, we always seem to bring ourselves back from the brink. And so even as I look around the world, I'm like, things are dark, things are kind of grim, the picture's a little shaky, I think I have hope in who we are as as people, as a global community, that even if it gets darker, it will get better because there are always people willing to fight. There are always people willing to put their lives on the line. There are always people willing to stand up and speak truth to what they really believe in. And so I think I just have faith in the underlying goodness of people, which might mean I'm not as cynical as I think I am, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, I, there are some people I'm like, you just rotten, like, ain't nothing, ain't nothing helping you, <laughs> you know, but I, I think overall, generally, I, I believe that there will be a point, like there have always been points in history, yeah. like in small societies, in large countries, and, and just globally, where people who are oppressed, people who are marginalized, disenfranchised economically, racially, you know, however that may be, where they say enough is enough and change comes because they have to force that change. And even if it's forced, it's change. And so I am hopeful because I know that there is always a straw that breaks the camel's back. There is always that one thing that people say no more. And so I hope that we reverse course before we have to get to the no more part, because we usually got to go through some pretty dark times to get there. Yeah. But in the end, you know, I think I just have faith in, in who we are as people. And we've been around for millennia. So, you know, if, if we can keep this track record up, I think we'll figure it out. I think we'll figure <laughs> it out again. <laughs> this
0: was fantastic. Morgan, thank you so much for being my guest. I really appreciate it. Of course. I had a lovely time chatting with you. Likewise. Thank you, Morgan. What a pleasure and a delight it was to talk to you. Like I said, last week, if you want to hear more from Morgan, stay tuned for the new stuff he's got planned for the summer, and follow him on Twitter. He's at Optimus underscore Moe. Or you can visit his website, morgangivens.com. If you want to hear the extended cut of this interview, head to patreon.com slash revival to support us at the $3 a month RDR Insider level, which entitles you to the extended cut archive of all our interviews. In the extended cut for this interview, Morgan tells me some breathtaking stories from his time as a DC cop, more about the experience of attending transom, and the sound design of Flyest Fables. If you already support our work, yo, thank you! Thank you to Paula and Michelle and Chris for being long-standing patrons of Radio Drama Revival. I am eternally grateful for your donations. Radio Drama Revival is brought to you by listeners like you and Paula and Michelle and Chris and also by my extensive practice at saying the names of New Orleans street names like a shrimp-crazed Eliza Doolittle. Conti, not Conti. Burgundy, not Burgundy. Chapatulis, not Chupatulis. Esplanade, not Esplanade. Now that I'm back in D.C. after my vacation to New Orleans, this information is sure to come in handy again real soon, I'm sure. Radio Drama Revival is also brought to you by the Coffee and Tea Exchange in Chicago. This isn't a paid promotion. I just, like, if you're in Chicago and you're in the Lakeview neighborhood, you should get your tea from there. It's extremely good and sold at prices that'll blast you off your ass. Every time I visit home, I buy like a pound of Kenilworth Ceylon black tea and it's like $17 for a pound of tea. Eat me, Argo. You're like four times as expensive. And now, the credits. Our theme music is Danger Digi-Do by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer is Matthew Boudreau. Our interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researchers are Heather Cohen and Monique Boudreau. Our social media manager is James Oliva. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhalgh. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. To make you cry, make you break down, shatter your illusions alone. And is it over now? Do you know how?